Hello, and welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. Today, we'll be looking at Jorge Luis Borges' classic short story, The Library of Babel. This was published in 1941. We read this in Andrew Hurley's translation, and this is a book called The Collected Fictions. This was published by Penguin Classics. This is a great edition. I've had this since college. I, I love this. I love this collection. Yeah, it's awesome. And uh, we have used it before, and we are going to use it a lot this year because this is the first installment in something we're doing this year, which is an entire series on Borges. We're going to cover five stories this year. These stories were all chosen by our Patreon supporters and and also the the theme itself was chosen by our Patreon supporters. Last year we had a series of votes to select two themes for us to devote really about half of our 2023 coverage to. The big winner was genre. For that, we're doing occult detective stories. But then the second category was to focus on a single author, right? To read a bunch of stories by the same author. And our Patreon supporters voted for Borges. And I have to tell you, Brandon, they voted for Borges like crazy. Borges received twice as many votes as the second place writer. That was Thomas Ligotti. And all the writers on the ballot were nominated by our Patreon supporters. I'm not going to go through them all, but I will say that H.P. Lovecraft, who was nominated, had a very poor showing. He came in second to last. Uh, That's, I guess, really often been his fate, though he did make it in the ballot for occult detective stories. So we will be covering his story, The Horror at Red Hook, for that theme. I will say, though, I was surprised by Borges winning. Uh, I had expected it would be Legati, but I was. Very, very wrong. Yeah, I, w- I would have thought so too. But I think uh, our audience likes the broad <laughs> kind of scope of writers that we cover on this show. And I'm delighted that Borges came in first. And if you feel as though you missed out on this vote, uh, join us on Patreon. We'll be doing this again starting in March in nominations and voting for the next theme and next author we focus on for, I don't know, what will that be? 2024, I guess. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. I need to get my driver's license renewed. So <laughs> just have been thinking that just struck me as a, an irritating thing I have to do real soon. But um, yeah, join us on Patreon so you can get involved in this process of how we pick what we do for the show for Elder Sign, especially if you like it, get your voice heard. But then also stay on Patreon for the dozens or maybe hundreds of bonus episodes that we have from shows across the whole network. There's so many awesome things on on Patreon, like, I don't know, we did an X-Files episode. We have At the Mountains of Madness. We have novels that we've just covered. It's great. So join us on Patreon regardless, but especially if you want to be involved in next year's selection for 2024 of Elder Sign. Yes, the more participation we have, the the better this is for, well, for, for us, for sure, but I think for the audience as well. So I'd be excited to have more people join us on Patreon to help us make those choices for next year. But let's turn our attention to this story. This is, I think, an especially famous Borges story. I think we're going to see as we go through it how it is important to some of the other writers that we cover on the network, if not necessarily on this show. And I'm really, really excited to get into it. So uh, take us through the story, Brandon. Yeah, this is one of my favorite stories. And it's not a story that's driven by plot 
really it's driven by its concepts instead. It's a philosophical story then. So what I'm going to do to recap it is really more to drive by some of the main ideas presented in the text. To begin with, though, I'll read the epigraph here, and, and this is what it says. By this art, you may contemplate the variation of the 23 letters. This passage is ostensibly an excerpt taken from Robert Burton's 17th century tome called The Anatomy of Melancholy, but the story itself begins in earnest in this way. The universe, which others call the library, is composed of an indefinite, perhaps infinite, number of hexagonal galleries. In the center of each gallery is a ventilation shaft bounded by a low railing. From any hexagon, one can see the floors above and below. That's where the quote ends. Uh, so now I'll talk a little bit about these, these galleries. This hexagonal gallery is like one unit of universe, if you want to put it that way. Uh, each unit, each hexagon has huge bookshelves lining four of the six walls. Uh, another one of the walls connects to a vestibule with a water closet and a sleeping chamber in which you can sleep standing up. And that vestibule connects then to another hexagon and so on ad infinitum. One of the walls then is left undescribed. But there's a mirror in the vestibule and a spiral staircase as well. Um, the presence of a mirror has become a philosophical problem for some librarians as they think, why would a place that is infinite need a surface to give off the illusion of infinity via reflection? There's also a dim light in the vestibule. It's given off by two light bulbs that never go out and also never provide sufficient lighting. Yeah. What a description. Also, what a cool place. This is essentially an infinite beehive full of books, also full of uncomfortable bedrooms. And while Borges doesn't give us any measurements, I think that we should imagine that there is not a lot of space between the bookshelves and then the railings that surround this uh, this air shaft, this ventilation shaft, because otherwise, right, you could just have a proper bed somewhere. You wouldn't need this like upright closet that you can sleep in. And so I think then that this also means that there isn't any kind of like other furniture around, right? There's no chairs, no desks or, or, or tables that you could use for reading. And this, for me at least then, really feels like it's a library as a warehouse rather than a library as a workplace for scholars. And it certainly does not feel like library as a community center. And I think the lighting suggests this as well. Uh, it, it never goes off, which you know, that sucks for sleeping, but it also isn't very bright, which, well, that sucks for being awake, right? And <laughs> I want to make one more note about the light here before I, I leave that behind, which is that the narrator says that the light is provided by certain spherical fruits that bear the name bulbs. Now, I don't know if we should take this literally and imagine that light bulbs in this library are actually a type of glowing fruit, or if Borges is really just showing us that the narrator doesn't understand that a light bulb is artificial, that it's something that's made by people. But this was something that really jumped out to me, and we will take it up in the discussion. I can't wait. It's such a wonderful sentence. It's, uh, I don't know, ripe with meaning, <laughs> to make a bad pun, uh, ripe with implication, perhaps. And yeah, my read is that the, the narrator doesn't know what it is 
I can't wait to get to the discussion to talk about this kind of place. Um, but it also that undescribed wall is so crucial to me as a reader on a personal level. I first encountered this story in a class called Philosophy and Literature uh, in college. It was an upper-level class, and we read this story, and the instructor really taught us to pay attention to what is undescribed in any type of fiction you read by this story. So maybe there is a wall of furniture. Maybe there are things that are so mundane on that wall that they're not worth describing. But then what are the mundane things in this world if the narrator doesn't know what a light bulb is? You know, it's it's so rich for the imagination to have this undisclosed space in 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 the hexagons. Yeah, I definitely spent some time this week with uh, hexagonal graph paper and uh, trying to <laughs> trying to figure this out. It was uh, <laughs> like to see if I was misunderstanding, right? To really see, like, is one of these walls left undescribed, or have I misunderstood somehow? And uh, yeah, yeah, we can address that in the discussion for sure. Can't can't wait to do that. Uh, it's yeah, it's so much fun. But all right, now that the narrator has situated us in the universe and given us a sense of place. He tells us now that he is old, he's preparing to die, and he's only really made it, or he's ended up maybe a few leagues away from the hexagon where he was born. So people are born in this place. Uh, He's going blind. He can barely continue on the endeavors that once interested him as a man. When he was younger, though, he traveled around the hexagons, he quested for books, or maybe he was really just after one book. That is the catalog of catalogs. In any event, since he's going to die, the narrator gives us a sense of the death ritual that is observed by those in the universe. The dead are thrown over a railing, and they fall forever, decomposing as they go. And it's with this thought that the narrator declares that the library is endless. This is his sort of uh, proof for it. It's connected to the death rituals. But other people have other ideas about this universe. For instance, the idealists believe in the necessity of the hexagonal shape, while the mystic thinks that the universal shape could be otherwise, and that God is certainly a circle. There's so much here. It's really parody of philosophical thought, but there's so much here in just this little brief section, and we've barely even begun the story. Yeah, this uh, this whole story is meant to be knee-slapping comedy for intellectual historians, <laughs> I, I, I think, right? And, uh, I think so, yeah. Yeah. Well, this section is really the foundation for everything that I want to talk about in the discussion, which is to say the culture and society of this imaginative, but I think also highly improbable fantasy setting. I, I, I just, I have questions. I have lots of, of questions here and uh, we're going to dig into that. But yeah, we need to you know continue. There is more going on here. There certainly is. And I will quibble with you when we get there about whether this is a fantasy or science fiction setting. So that'll be, that'll be fun as well. But let's get on to what's on the bookshelves in the library. It's books. Uh, and each book is 410 pages. Each page has 40 lines. Each line has about 80 letters in it. Now, there are only 22 letters in this universe, while the punctuation is limited to the period and comma. Uh, The space is also considered to be a symbol, and this 
then leads to the realization, uh, to the understanding in this universe that there are only 25 orthographic symbols in Toto. So we get a little footnote here that suggests perhaps that the manuscript we're reading has been written or discovered. It's been written by an unknown author using only 22 characters, spaces, periods, and commas. This writer, this author uses no numbers or capital letters. The footnote includes a semicolon. I guess this is a kind of joke in and of itself. Yeah, right. See see earlier about uh, knee-slapping comedy for, <laughs> for intellectual historians and maybe just nerds like us more generally. And yeah, this footnote is cool, right? Because it's labeled editor's note. So no matter what else we might say about this library, Borges at least seems to be of the opinion that it is not the entire universe, right? That our universe, our world exists and has somehow gotten a copy of this text and also managed to translate it. And uh, I think there's some some real fodder for a sequel there, I think. I think the sequel has been written by people like Gene Wolfe, perhaps, or <laughs> you know, something along those lines. All right, let's stay on the topic of books for a little while, even though that means jumping around in the text itself a little, the manuscript that we're reading. The narrator tells us that some time ago, centuries ago, a discovery was made or was reasoned out uh, that communicated that the library contains every book that could possibly have been written, will be written, or could be imagined. For instance, one could very plausibly stumble across a book that the Venerable Bede could have written on the mythology of the Saxon people, though he did not write it. The library even contains every conceivable vindication, and that's with a capital V, obviously capitalized by an editor, but a vindication that would justify the actions of all persons in the universe and also would contain arcana for men's futures. Though finding a true vindication rather than a false vindication, and moreover, finding your own vindication in an infinite compilation or an infinite set of books would be statistically impossible. Mostly, though, the language or the words found within each 410-page book is indecipherable, um, though that is not maybe the same as the books containing nonsense. Perhaps the languages that the books are written in are ancient and unknown. Maybe some books are written in a code that nobody's broken. Some texts, though, are really meaningless. Like, there's one text that just repeats the character's MCV over and over and over again. Some of what I've just gone through here is is really in service, though, to summing up three axioms of the library. And we've already talked about the second and third axioms. There are 25 orthographic symbols, and in all the library, there are no two identical books, from which a philosopher reasoned out that all books and potential books are present. But I haven't yet brought up the first axiom, which is that the library has existed ab aeternitate. Uh, Glenn, you can correct my uh, <laughs> pronunciation of Latin there, but that means from eternity. The library has always existed, though the nature of the library's existence, is it good or evil? Is it made by a god who stands outside of time? These are open questions. Let me just elaborate on some of this here. I, I think the the most important thing to emphasize is that while there are books in this library as we would understand them, which is to say books that record the thoughts of a person for some express purpose, most of the books are full of nonsense. 
And Borges describes this as leagues of senseless cacophony, verbal nonsense, and incoherence, which is just, that's fantastic. Uh, sometimes I want to write that on, on student papers, I suppose, as well. But, uh, <laughs> I'm sure he felt the same way. Yes, yes certainly. So uh, not only are there no beds for sleeping and no chairs for reading, it is also possible that you might find yourself in an area of the library where there aren't even any books to read at all, just gibberish. And in fact, Borges says that there are librarians who believe that all books are just gibberish, even the books that aren't. It's an astonishing philosophical position, really, to take. It's an absurd one, to be sure. And and, and indeed, this story does play a lot with um, what would become the debate or what really is the debate of existentialism versus essentialism. You know, is there anything necessary in the universe? Is everything really just contingent and stacked contingencies? You know, what even is the nature of meaning? How do we derive it? What are our hermeneutic vantage points that we take, you know, when even declaring that some text has meaning for who, under what conditions. Uh, this this whole story is a, a really funny joke, even though um, to say it like that makes it not funny. But it's, it's, a, it's, it's a really funny story because somehow Borges has been able to just kind of poke fun at the structure of thoughts that we use to derive meaning from the ordinary world that we live in. Yeah, you and I are the least funny people on the planet, so we are not doing this story, I think, any any service here, at least on the humor department. Yeah, no, certainly not. Uh, Well, let's return to the text here. One thing that the narrator is concerned with is the population of the library. So we'll move away from the, the books and their meaning here for a moment. The population of the library is declining due to a number of things. There's epidemic, there's heretical discords, uh, and there's pilgrimage that degenerate into lives of crime. Uh, Borges uses the wonderful word brigandage here, which is not used enough, I think, in our or any language. But there's also another cause of death, and it is suicides that are the result of despair. Despair, uh, maybe we could say melancholy, comes in many flavors in the library. There are people who become hopeless in their search for the bookman. That is a person who is a special librarian who was rumored an age ago to have read the book describing all books in the library, making them godlike. I suppose this is different than the catalog of catalogs. There's the rise and fall of hope that is the resulting feelings of the realization that every book is present in the library, though the chances of finding the one you're looking for is null. Uh, It's maybe perhaps what it might feel like to go to a bookstore and only find James Patterson novels on the shelf. (laughs) (laughs) You might feel that elation of hope rise as you come across a book like Combed Thunder or The Plaster Cramp. Or a phrase inside of a book might excite you, like, O time thy pyramids, you know, with its full arcane meaning. But then you'd be stuck with the thorny problem of deriving meaning from some hermeneutic vantage point that might be rooted in some false book that, though sensical, was untrue. How can such things even be judged? It's it's overwhelming, and you might just want to lean a little too far over the center railing in the honeycomb. But our narrator, though old, has avoided these pitfalls of despair. 
He does, though, fear for the future of the human race. He knows that if humanity wipes itself out, the library will endure, but there will be no one there to decode its meaning. This is a, an existential argument. And the narrator has caused to hope in the periodization of the total system that is the library. And here we're at the end of the story, so I'll read the final line that refers to this moment. But I want to say, before I do that, that I think we probably could have gone line by line through this story, and perhaps this story does deserve that. I've re resisted the urge to force you to do that, Glenn, for this episode. Um, what I'm trying to say is that I feel uncomfortable ending the, the recap at all. This is a story that I think just bears up under the weight of total scrutiny. I've left out some math jokes, too, regarding the work of the purifiers and so forth. I've left out bits about the men who live in the bathrooms refusing to open any book at all. Uh, but I will end here where Borges does with hope and with the promise of a discussion following this line. If an eternal traveler should journey in any direction, he would find, after untold centuries, that the same volumes are repeated in the same disorder, which repeated becomes order. The order. My solitude is cheered by that elegant hope. And this is the end of the story that from, I guess, the right perspective, order can be perceived. Yeah, and I love I love the phrase elegant hope. Just what a beautiful combination of words there. Well, you are absolutely right, Brandon, that we could spend an infinite amount of time on this story. And in fact, there are an infinite number of approaches to talking about it. I spent an awful lot of time this week reading the scholarly work on this story. There is a ton of it. Uh, for example, there is a book by William Goldblum Block, who is a mathematician at Wheaton College in Massachusetts, that is entirely about the math in this story. This book was awesome. I super recommend it. But you and I are not actually going to talk about the, the, the math. Uh, I mean, one of the reasons being we're not particularly qualified to. But I really also just bring that up as an example of what you were saying, right? To emphasize that we are just barely going to scratch the surface of this story today. And always when we have a story like this, a story that that is in the canon and a story of this caliber, my impulse is to look around at what other scholars have said about a story, take that as a starting point. It's just easy fodder for discussion, right? To see whether we agree or disagree with what other scholars have said and let that shape a conversation. But I actually think that we would better serve Borges scholarship. And then I think more importantly, we would better serve our listeners by doing our own thing today. And in particular, I think that what we ought to do is read this story in line with other stories that we cover. So what I want to do to start, and this really will be the bulk of the discussion, but what I want to do is imagine that this Library of Babel is real and try to figure out how human society functions in this place. And of course, I say, you know, figure out how, but none of the questions I'm asking have answers that are in the text, right? And so in a sense, what I'm asking us to do is to take this Borges story, flesh out the setting, uh, you know, and maybe it's because we want to make a role-playing game for this setting, for example. And I really started thinking about this because of three lines in the text. And the first of these lines comes when the narrator tells us that he is going to die a few leagues from the hexagon where he was born. And then there's another point where he tells us about something he learned from his father. Uh, I'll save the third line for later, because obviously these two lines have something in common, and that is a concept of 
of, of birth and therefore a concept of family, but we don't see any families here. What we see are sparse and, and I think really quite Spartan living quarters, uh, you know, where you, you sleep standing up, there's no cribs, there's no booster seats, there's no tables for, you know, game night. But these lines indicate that human reproduction is happening and that parents know their children even though the story doesn't feel like this is a world where any of that is happening. And so the, just the question to kick us off here, Brandon, is what do you think domestic life is like in the Library of Babel, right? Do the librarians live in nuclear families or or is there some other arrangement here? I, I wonder if the way that Borges raises these issues is is an attempt to kind of parody or satirize uh, people who leave home, you know, at the age of 18 to 20, whatever, and get caught up in some sort of uh, academic problem that makes them forget there's like a broader world and a broader society <laughs> that like propped up even the possibility for them to, uh, to pursue the endeavor that they're pursuing. That's my first thought. Uh, the, my second thought as a preamble here is also in kind of modernity in particular, uh, and through, I don't know, books like The Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, there is this hyper-romantic view of eschewing that domestic relationship, the importance of your childhood, of growing up, in when coming into your own means abandoning any sort of social structure that is there as an aid and kind of roughing it and st- stepping out as a pure individual, right? This uh, this uh, Promethean concept that was a big deal in Romanticism and carried on into modernity. You know, the final line, the final heroic line of Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man is this kind of stepping out into this um, Promethean individualism that no matter the consequences, you have to go and pursue your own ends. And probably 10 years ago, I would have said, yeah, that, that makes sense. That is the point of life. It doesn't, you know, I'm domestic, I'm a domesticated house cat now. So I, you know, and I've come to enjoy, enjoy that. And so, um, I can see both sides of this, this perspective. And certainly when you're a younger man, this is what you want to do. But this narrator hasn't really found any solace in domestic life either. And I question where the women are. I question so many things, like where food comes from. Um, Do people eat food cubes here? Are babies dispensed the way the food is and people are just blessed with a child from a machine or something like that? Uh, Yeah. Do people have sex? Are there couplings? What do they look like? Do people settle down in a particular library? And why would they settle there? What I've done instead of answering your question, Glenn, is throw a lot of other questions at you that I don't have answers to. Well, yeah, and you brought up what was going to be my follow-up question, because this other line that really jumped out to me is this bit about the light bulbs being a fruit. This this just had me wondering if there is actual fruit in this library (laughs) or any food, right? And if there is, where does it come from? You know, which is to say that, right, like humans are alive here and we know there are toilets and so there must be eating and drinking, but- how? Where is all of that happening, right? Is is this the mysterious undescribed wall, like also actually a garden? Is this also where the cribs are and like the dinner table, like, <laughs> right? And where is any of this? How is this happening? Because the world as it's presented to us is, as you say, a world of solitary men who are wandering 
around. And so the world, as Borges builds it up, really makes this feel, well, monastic or or, or even hermetic, right? There's a combination here, a kind of blend of Chenobitic monasticism, which is to say monks living together in a community, but not doing things together because they're in their own rooms contemplating all the time. So there's a, a lonerness to this. But then also there's a sense here as well of being a hermit wandering in the wilderness. That this library is wild in the sense of being uninhabited, right? It's desert in the sense of being deserted. And one of the things you do, in fact, the thing you do when you come of age, then is wander around. And so I do wonder if there is just an infinite amount of space or seemingly infinite amount of space anyway, where young men go wander into but that they have left behind then some part of the library where there is actually all of this domesticity, where some of the space is for having food somehow, though still I don't know where water comes from in this closed system, because presumably it doesn't rain in the library, because you do not want libraries that rain inside of them for the sake of the books, right? So yeah, I mean, just this is all, I mean, I think it's a cool, cool setting in the way that it feels. And I think being able to really build out a society that functions materially, uh, the way that uh, a historical materialist such as myself would would, would you know demands demands to know right i i think this would be just an amazing setting for more for more stories there's also the question of epidemics right of communicable disease and so forth which how who would have introduced say the animal carrying the virus or something like that where would bacteria be introduced to the environment that people would have to learn to build up a tolerance for um yeah this the, how is epidemic passed from person to person how is a virus passed uh if people are kind of isolated in these ways if it's you could go for a couple days without seeing another person. Where do sick people go? Um, what happens if you're sick and you stumble upon a man living in the bathroom and he refuses to leave? I guess you go to the next vestibule. But uh, it's just, it's so it's so curious, so imaginative, and at the same time, so impossible to wrap your head around. And yet, you know that that's part of the joke because this story is full of just these rich concepts that communicate to us as readers the deep thought that went into creating a hilarious world like this you know and and also there's the suspicion of people who band together which we get later in the story with these pilgrimages that that devolve into brigandage so it's so fascinating i don't know i i guess i have nothing to say to what you said, or I've even forgotten what you said, and I've just gone in my own direction here. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll move us on a little bit here, because I, I was also really struck by the funeral culture, this, this bit about throwing dead bodies down the ventilation shafts. And there is, I think, just in general here, a lot of culture in this, uh, this story, this account, I guess, right? Now, everything that we get, is intellectual culture, and then also what I think we could fairly describe as religion as well. We get these debates about the extent of the library, whether or not there is a catalog of sorts, whether books can ever really contain or convey meaning, and so on. And these are clearly not merely intellectual discussions, but really are matters of of belief. I think also even matters of practice. And Borges 
I mean, he even uses the words heresy and inquisitor. He gives us an example of an inquisitor who's wandering around the library and checking books for heretical words. And to me, this was super cool. But it also struck me that most of these disputes are at their core about whether the universe is fundamentally ordered or fundamentally chaotic, which also then is, I mean, that's right there in the final line that you read into the microphone, Brandon. I think this, I don't know, I I don't want to say balance, I guess, but this dichotomy, right, between order and chaos and the way that that is resulting in religion and, and intellectual culture here in the library, all of that is great fodder for expansion, great fodder for a weird fiction expansion of this world. It's so amazing because it's even raised in the text, the question of creation, right? And God being something that is outside of the order of things, right? If the order is hexagon, God is a circle, right? Uh, And there's some probably some brilliant math analysis to do with that as well. But yeah, we see also a parody of Christ in this story with the book man who is uh, all book and all man, perhaps is the implication of, of this character in the same way that Christ is all divine, all God and all man, you know, 100% of each. And, th- you know, that's kind of a hilarious joke in and of itself. There's the searching, there's the yearning for the discovery of the root of the order uh, in a universe that seems to be so generally disordered, though there are hints of order everywhere, the shelving, the light bulbs, the way it was made, and these people who have lived here who did not see its creation trying to make sense of what this universe is made of. And um, this is all a really funny way of making strange the way we start to ask questions about our own world. And part of the joke here, I think, is the problem of even categorizing something as world or universe, right? These can never be more than mere abstractions to us. Anytime somebody starts talking about world problems or this or that, it's how do you even encounter that really? You hear about it and you get depressed and you read about it on Twitter or CNN or Fox News or wherever you're getting your news from, BBC America, Al Jazeera, I don't know. You look for some respectable journalist to describe the problem to you. And then what do you have? You have knowledge of a problem that you can impact, right? So the world is always this big abstraction. And uh, I don't know, maybe what I'm saying is we should just all grow cucumbers and potatoes and tomatoes and 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 I don't, read books. I don't. Is that the moral of the story? I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> it might be, though. There are no there are no cucumbers <laughs> appearing in this in this story. But I think what you you point to here is really the kind of anxiety of just not knowing what your world is like, and trying to figure that out. And that is ultimately the joke here, right? This is Borges envisioning what it was like in the early days of ancient Greek philosophy. There's a lot here that specifically derives from ancient Greek philosophy. Uh, I'm, I'm sure that much of it also is you know, representative of modernist philosophy as well. But picturing antiquity in which philosophy you know, is born here, right? The Greek word philosophy is born in a world in which people are trying to answer these questions without a whole lot of tools, right? These questions that in some sense, at least are scientific questions, right? Where you're just trying to describe the properties of your world as best you can in order then to figure out how the things that are in the world function and also how they relate with 
one another, how they interact with one another. But that the best tool that you have for this, or maybe even the only tool that you have for this, is your own mind, right? That you don't have any tools where you can really examine the contents of the world. And Borges has dialed that up to 11 here by even taking away any ability to observe anything that is outside of the world, where people in antiquity could look to the sky for all sorts of observational insights about what the world was like. Here, Borges has even taken away any ability, as far as we can tell, to measure the passage of time, because the lights don't even turn off. And as far as I can tell, there aren't any clocks or anything like that in this world. He has some sense of like duration of lifetimes, like a lifetime as a unit of, of chronological measurement. But there, you know, how, can you, how do you know when one day is over? How, do you, how can you even tell that? And so that's maddening. How could you exist in a world like that, where you're a world like that in which your impulse is to try to make sense of the world, and there aren't even any external signifiers, any external observation <laughs> points? It's you would, I think, just go mad here. He is. He is looking at the propensity, or maybe the um, nature of the mind to to yearn uh, and to strive and to seek things beyond its immediate environment. And yet there's this kind of uh, fractal joke here that everything is the same. It just depends on the scale. <laughs> so, you know, you go from one hexagon to the next and even the, the hope at the end of this story is a, a hope in, in, in fractals, essentially, that all, the ultimate order is a kind of new perspective on the disorder, a new vantage point from which to observe the disorder. And if you could find that, that catalog of catalogs, you could be at peace on some level. Other people have found peace in in this story, I think it's abundantly clear that Borges is thinking that these people invent God and then despair his absence, you know, which is a, a joke about how, how Nietzsche characterized religion or the death of God, so to speak. So there's so much here um, that is really just about that yearning to create sense in you do actually also don't have to, you know, maybe, maybe one way to look at this story is to think of the perspective that this generation of sense, if we realize it's coming from all within us, is cause to despair, is cause for madness. Um, and maybe just, I don't know, finding a lighter way to, to move through the hexagons is better. I don't know. And, you know, you, you know, and it's like the Aleph, which we also covered, where, of course, the wrong person is going to discover the thing that holds all meaning, right? The right person is never going to find what they're looking for. It's going to be the guy digging through his friend's basement who finds this way to perceive all the world. There are several strategies that people have in this library for dealing with the the madness, I guess, that this environment is going to, is, is just going to instill in you or create in you, draw out of you at some point. And, you know, this despair is is certainly one of them, right? People just succumb to this despair. And, and then there's the suicide epidemic, right? That's, that's happening in this library as a strategy for dealing with this environment. But Borges also shows us all of these you know, in intellectual movements, I guess, but I, I would really characterize them as as religions here, where people are 
you know, someone is advocating a particular interpretation of you know the significance, the meaning of of what this world is, and telling other people about it, and then people are creating communities that are united around uh, a kind of celebration of that interpretation, and this is a, an antidote, right? This is a way of protecting yourself from the 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 emptiness or, or the the madness maybe of this environment, but this all had me very interested in imagining how the librarians even create these religious institutions and also how they disseminate knowledge. And I think that something we might do, Brandon, is even wonder how the narrator has the knowledge that he has of the history of human culture in the library to begin with. And so that is my penultimate question for this line of thinking, Brandon, which is just this. Are new books being produced by the librarians themselves? It's it's hilarious. It's such a funny way to approach this story because I think what you're pointing to perhaps is the real final joke of the story, which is where is this being written down, <laughs> right? Right. It, we have a manuscript that's clear because we have an editor to give us a step of distance from the text itself. We have capital letters. We have it ordered in a way that we can read. And so where... Was this written down? Is paper, new paper being produced? Are all of these texts palimpsests? Are we missing something? Why are some of the languages, languages that we know of about in, in our world from Earth? What What is happening here? And once again, I've dodged the question by asking new ones. Yeah, well, I mean, that is always your tactic, but I'll, I'll, I'll pull this back in here. I mean, we, we didn't really go through, you know, we didn't really present any ways that we might answer these questions of like, yeah, where does paper come from? Where does food come from? Where are the women? And so on. Uh, but I think we can do that now because I, I had joked earlier about you know, going through these types of questions so that we could build an RPG for this setting, which yeah. that would be cool. But now I actually do want us to do something like that because I, I, you know, I think it would be fun for each of us to pitch a story or at least a story hook where we could put a proper narrative into this world. Uh, I think this is fun for the two of us as writers. I think it's also useful for the writers in our audience. And of course, we know there are a lot of them. But also, taking a Borges idea and turning it into a proper narrative is essentially the entire writing career of Gene Wolfe and also Neil Gaiman, <laughs> who are the two writers we have dedicated shows for on the network. So it seems like something we have kind of an obligation to do. And so, yeah, what what's a, I don't know, just a, a pitch or a hook that you might come up with for this world, for a proper narrative? Well, before I answer that, I do want to say that that some of that kind of interrogative questioning that I'm doing and that you continue to you know, where are the women? Where's the food? These are questions about that, that you get in, in critical theory types of courses that are rooted in this kind of uh, uh, historical Marxist type of investigation. You know, where are the means of productions and the people doing the work that allows the story to be told in the first place? And I think that Borges is 100% aware of that type of critical discourse and is writing this story as a joke for these types of, of critics who, who love to engage in this type of thought. And in fact, this is a perfect story to introduce that type of critical lens through which to analyze a text because so much is suggested and so little is described. But this world has to function on some level. So in my answering of the story pitch question, it really is trying to answer all of those questions. Also, maybe taking a little bit 
from Gene Wolfe's silhouette, a little bit from Filipose Farmer's River World, and saying that this is uh, clearly a spaceship. I'm not convinced that gravity is the same way it is on Earth, though it has to have some weight bearing down because people will fall. Uh, another question of the text is where does anybody see body falls? Is there a ritual, something people do when the they see a body fall down their hexagon, though it's probably as unlikely to see a body fall as, as it is to find a book with a meaning if this place is truly infinite. So I would say it's not infinite. It is big enough and the population has dwindled enough to feel that way and that this is basically some kind of elaborate generation spaceship that people have lived on that the original purpose has been forgotten. That's also Book of the Long Sun. And and so the narrative hook is someone's going to find the book man, basically. Yeah, this was actually more or less going to be my pitch as well. I just oh, couldn't. Man. Well, I just couldn't stop thinking about this in terms of Book of the Long Sun, which uh, hopefully, although it will be about thirty years from now, hopefully we will actually get to cover someday. It's our favorite. <laughs> we'll do it in our seventies. Yeah, they, we, I mean, I think yes, that's what we're looking at right now. It's my favorite Gene Wolfe novel, and uh, yeah, it's really. I felt like now, you know, reading this story this week, really trying to dig into it, also reading a ton of scholarship on it. I really felt like. The Book of the Long Sun is kind of fan fiction for this story. And I had the same idea where I want someone from inside this world to realize that this is totally artificial. This world is contained within some other kind of machine that itself is actually removed from the people who created it in some way. That's exactly the sort of story that I want. You know, like someone, you know, we're following, I don't know, some, you know, it has to be, I guess, some young person, right? We can YA this up a little bit, who's just, you know, leaving his family or her family, because that's what you do when you come of age. You have to go wander around the abandoned areas of this library for some reason and find the one hexagon that's not the same. There's a hatch. There's a door. Right, you know that something that no on the sixth wall. Right, exactly, and well, you know, you, you, maybe you can't open it immediately, right? Because then, and then, book one ends with that discovery, I guess, right? And then now, book two is about figuring out how to open this thing, or you know, and then book three will be about uh, what happens, you know, once when you go through the passage uh, that's that's behind this hatch, or climb up the ladder, or whatever. If we take your idea about gravity being a little bit wonky, right? That there's a ladder that takes you up in a way that's actually perpendicular to what you think. Of as down, right? Something like that, right? And yeah, and then, you know, there you are, you're looking out a window, <laughs> you know, at, at black space um, or or the bright sun in a desert or something, you know, something like that. Yeah, I think that's certainly one type of story we could tell here. This is essentially, you've just repitched uh, the first three seasons of Lost. <laughs> yeah, I guess, uh, which, I guess the which hat, is, right. Yeah. Which, is, which is caught, I mean, it's caught, Lost is caught up in these questions as well. You know, what is meaningful? How do we generate meaning? Where do polar bears come from? Where do polar bears come from? How do people band together? Uh, and and what kind of reasons do people have for banding together? You know, uh, is a doctor really a hero? I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. Is the classic American rogue figure heroic? I don't know. Probably. He falls in love with Juliet. That's got to mean something. <laughs> uh, you know, the, but yeah, no, this story is is a true delight. We could have gone really could have gone line by line through it and and pointing out all of the philosophical jokes, all of the uh, mathematical stuff going on and relied on all the scholarship. But anyone can find that 
you know, if they want to. I love this approach you've taken of really looking at this story as a bit of speculative fiction because I, I don't know, that's what we do on Elder Side. Well, it is, and that and that leads into the the final thing I want us to do, Brandon, which is to talk about other speculative fiction libraries that we like. There are loads of them, but the one in particular that jumps out to me in this story, I mean, it's basically pitched here in the story, is Lucian's library in The Dreaming in Neil Gaiman's work, The Sandman, which Brent and I, of course, are covering over on Hanging Out with the Dream King, is now a super successful TV show. So everyone on the planet has now, you know, some experience of this. And the idea of that library is that it houses books that have never actually been written, that they've only been dreamed about or even just imagined, like thought of. So it's books that living people have planned to write, but never actually did. It has the endings of books that were left unfinished. It then also has books that literally people have dreamed about. And that's right here in this story, right? It has all of the books that do exist, but also all of the books that could ever exist. And very clearly, right, the idea of Lucian's library comes from this story. And forever, you know, as a teenager, Lucian's library was the place I wanted to go live. Um, you know, for one thing, it has more furniture and like fireplaces and like <laughs> nice beverages and stuff. Uh, it's not this thing that feels very much like the cold interior of a spaceship. But that's uh, an element of a feature of the Sandman that just captured my imagination long before I'd ever read any Borges. And I think it is a great example of, uh, well, one, just a speculative fiction library at all, but also just a great example of the influence of Borges on our culture and and especially you know what certainly now is our pop culture Totally. And and there's echoes of this type of concept in Jasper Ford's Thursday Next series uh which is all about I don't know writing the wrongs of people who wish to change fiction. I guess I don't know. Maybe it's a whole series is an attack on uh on fan writers. I'm not sure. I've only read the first one and I loved it. Um and then there's another series uh by Genevieve Cogman that I've long been eyeing and haven't quite picked up from the library yet because we've been busy, but hopefully in next year I'll get to this. This is the Invisible Library series, which is much more uh in that vein of, you know, the thriller detective story, but it's about an agent for a, a library that houses fiction from all different kinds of realities. And you can, I don't know, get that this story, the the Library of Babel is a kind of germ for these sort of ideas about what happens to all the things that could have been, you know, all the books that could have been written but weren't? Um, I'm sure that there's a, a shelf with uh, at least a dozen of those with my name on it in in that library. Well, I guess then we are leaving our listeners with some other suggestions for further reading, and I guess leaving yourself with a suggestion for further reading as well, Brandon. <laughs> further writing. For yeah, me. I guess that's true. I guess that's true. Yeah. So on that note, that is going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Don't forget to join us on Patreon at patreon.com slash claytemplemedia to help us select our themes for the next year, but also to take advantage of the huge amount of content that we have on there for you, uh, the people that support our network. Next time, we'll be back with the first of two episodes on The Autopsy by Michael Shea. This was actually just released recently as a television episode in a, um, anthology, a new horror anthology series on Netflix. 
But we're going to cover the story. I don't think we're going to watch the show. Until then, we greet you and say farewell.